Welcome to You Don't Have to Explain, the podcast that traces a single poem from where it starts to whether it ever ends. I'm your host, James Fujinami Moore. Suzanne Highland is a queer writer from the Gulf Coast of Florida. Her poetry has been published or is forthcoming in Apogee, Nat Brute, and in the anthology Home is Where You Queer Your Heart from Foglifter Press. She has also received support from the 92nd Street Y, Sundress Academy for the Arts, Vermont Studio Center, and Brooklyn Poets. Today, she's here to talk about her poem, Dead Horse Bay. In this episode, you'll hear about the place and moment that inspired the initial lines, the way the work transformed in editing, and finally, about how the subjects in the poem connect to her wider interests and work. Finally, you'll hear her read the poem in its entirety. If you want to skip forward to that reading, it's at 12.28. Now, in her own words, here's Suze. Hi, my name is Suzanne Highland. We're going to talk about my poem, Dead Horse Bay, which was published in Iron Horse Literary Review. Shout out Jess Smith for that one. I was at Dead Horse Bay, which is a body of water off the coast of New York City in Brooklyn. It's between these two inlets, the Gerritsen Inlet and the Rockaway Inlet. If you live in New York City or you've ever been a queer person (laughs) in New York City, uh, it's possible that you've been to Rockaway Beach. So it's kind of out a little bit from the quote unquote center of the city. There used to be a number of different manufacturing businesses down there, fish oil production, and also, as I guess the name may indicate, you know, manufacturing different resources from the remains of horses, glue, etc. It's also a landfill. There's a part of it most people wander to when they come to Dead Horse Bay, which is that there's all of these glass bottles, old shoes, pieces of pottery that have washed up onto shore or been pulled from the ground by erosion. And the first moment of the poem for me was walking around in this place for the first time. When the waves come in, you can hear the glass tinkling against itself. It's a true New York City marvel, this really urban, historically kind of castaway place. That's where the poem came from initially, is that spot. I was out there on a date, actually. (laughs) I'd heard about it. If you Google search hidden places in New York City, it's on that list. Um, Me and the person that I was seeing at the time went out there. We drove out there, did research about where to find the spot. I think for me, living in New York, I'm always searching for those waylaid places, those places that feel more forgotten in the landscape of New York City. There's an escape, I think, that happens in those places. You can look at the skyline and feel separate from it for just a second. For me, that's a relief. Dead Horse Bay is really like stepping back into time. You find glass medicine bottles. You Google the names of the manufacturers and it's like turn of the century. It's very different from my like day-to-day life in New York. And I think that I'm seeking that. I think in my heart it started with the glass, but the poem actually starts with a phone. The first line of the first draft is, I look at my phone for your name. Without your name, you are not real. Which is nowhere to be found in the poem now. The glass comes in the second stanza in the first draft. Eventually, I figured out that maybe there's going to be a phone, but that 
the emotional heart of the poem, the other person picking glass out of the sand needed to come a little later in the poem. I know I always collect things. This is a theme in my life, but also in my poetry. The gathering of the glass, the image which occurs in every draft, to me is searching for something that grounds you in your experience, grounds you on earth. I chose couplets because they are the lovers' stanzas, historically. I think I was trying to write a love poem, but I wasn't in love and I wasn't feeling positive about love at the time. It was interesting to me to try to work in the form of a love poem, even if the content of the poem is not love in the end, but rather one's desperate desire to have love, to see love, to experience it. I think there's something like love or that feels much like love when you memorialize someone to freeze them for a moment. But the poem is wanting very much to be a love poem. But in the end, it doesn't have, I want to say it doesn't have the strength to get there. The editing process for this poem is quite similar to the editing process, I think, for a lot of my poems, which is, first of all, I have a hard time <laughs> revising and editing. I don't think I showed the poem in its first couple of iterations to anyone, but eventually I did. But when it was still just me and the poem from first to second draft, the title changed. The first draft, the title was called Greeting. I look at my phone for your name. Without your name, you are not real. There was something there that eventually transformed. The second draft is called Dead Horse Bay, which is how it stays from here on out. The first stanza is I follow you around write your name in my hand. Always starting with, I think, what actually became the end, that seeking, that ends up over the course of revision being pushed to the end of the poem instead of the beginning. I'm curious about why that happened, asking myself now. There are two moments in the poem that changed in process. The first change that was significant was the removal of a dream. So the second draft, there's a dream in which the speaker tries to explore this idea of the loved other, the other person. I say the speaker, I mean myself. I think it's kind of bullshit when poets talk about it like this when it's not. I might as well be frank. The dream, which is a dream I have often, is a fire dream of flames leaping from roof to roof. And I'm calling somebody and trying to let them know they need to get out. And that dream stayed in the poem until the end. Then I ditched it. The reason I ditched it was because I didn't want this poem to take place in a dream. It's already a strange landscape that if you describe it to someone in real life, it sounds fantastical. It felt important to me as I was revising and realizing things about the poem that I keep it real, which is ironic because the, the speaker is also asking for the real in intimacy with another person. Maybe it was me trying to answer that question for myself. I don't know, but I just decided to make it real in the poem. So the most recent version, the first stanza, I plead into my phone for you to pick up your phone. That's it. We're there. We're on the phone. This is not a dream that's actually happening because the reality is that it was always actually really happening. It was always real. So I lost the dream. <laughs> the second change that occurred from the first draft of this poem to the final draft 
is a direct result of a workshop. My friend Jess Smith, who was one of the editors of Iron Horse Literary Review, made a suggestion that I resisted initially. So in the poem that is published in Iron Horse Literary Review, the last stanza, the line is, in a dream you come up from the beach saying, wow, look at this, then hold out your hand, and I look at it, happy. And that word happy, Jess was like, cut that. <laughs> don't have that in there. Don't tell the reader, right? Like what the feeling is. And I resisted it because I thought that happy provided a contrast with the atmosphere of the poem. And then in further revisions, I just realized like, damn, she's right. <laughs> happy doesn't make sense at all. Not that it doesn't make sense at all, but it didn't fit the poem that emerged from the first draft of this poem. I hope it's a more accessible experience for the reader rather than like a puzzle I'm trying to figure out for myself. The experience that I was trying to convey is one of scarcity and isolation from yourself, but also physical isolation. In the first couple of drafts of the poem, there's just too much going on. And I realized I needed to convey the landscape without decorating it too much. I have five drafts of the poem from beginning to end. In reality, there's probably more than that because I have the counterproductive tendency to edit sometimes in a manuscript itself or sometimes when I am working on a submission packet. So things get lost sometimes. Five drafts is probably a fewer number of drafts on average than I will have for poems that come to fruition, meaning I continue to work on them, I hold them. Five drafts, it's not that many, actually. The truth is that I didn't and don't know that the poem is finished. You could say I knew the poem was finished when it was published because it became an object outside of me that in the form of its publication I could no longer change. However, the poem has changed slightly but significantly since it was published. That is the reality, I think, of poems is that we, we just have to decide they're finished. There's no, I could take it forever. I think I felt like it was ready to see people, other eyes, other than my own. That to me is a sign that it is at least at some stage of finished. And that was after I had whittled it down quite a bit from the initial drafts. But even still, the version of it that's in my manuscript that I'm currently working on is different. And actually, the most recent version of that manuscript doesn't have this poem at all. It's kind of what happens. It fits and then it doesn't anymore. It's kind of sad because I love the poems. It's hard to like cut them out. It's hard to think that they would no longer be appropriate for what I've been working on. But that's how it happens sometimes. I'm very interested in the landscapes that sit on the edge. I'm from Florida, born and raised, and lived there for most of my life. And that landscape is also one of the edge. There are people all over Florida, oftentimes inserting themselves arbitrarily and destructively into the natural landscape of Florida. The natural landscape of Florida is also unparalleled, unique to the United States of America in almost every way. That tension between the natural world and the human world, that grief that I feel when I think about our relationship to the natural world, it runs through all of my poems. In Dead Horse Bay, there are these trees on the edge of the water that sort of jut out. Many of them have fallen. And over the years, people have come and strung cloth 
ropes around them, hung glass bottles from the branches, made them into these monuments to human existence. There's something about trying to like see yourself and preserve yourself in a landscape, especially like New York, that can be so difficult sometimes, so anonymous. I feel like I live in these landscapes in my mind, always. Now, here's Suzanne Highland reading Dead Horse Bay. Dead Horse Bay. I plead into my phone for you to pick up your phone. Meanwhile, branches draped in Spanish moss and beaded garlands glint from the gathering of pine trees, outposts at the edge of the land where slaughtered horses keep their graves. You pick up glass from the sand, brown bottlenecks, broken amberware, bluish shards, stamped tabanera cigars. You come up from the water saying, wow, look at this. Then hold out your hand and I look at it. That was Suzanne Highland talking about Dead Horse Bay, which was first published in Iron Horse Literary Review number 21.2, summer 2019. Her work can be found at suzannehighland.com. For more episodes of You Don't Have to Explain, subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening, or visit us at our website, youdonthavetoexplain.com. I've been your host, James Fujinami Moore. Thanks for listening.